Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In the early 11th century, an English monk wrote an imaginary conversation in which two monks haggle over the price of a book. After finally agreeing to a price, to a just price, more about that later, they then needed to establish what means of payment would be used, and the buyer reeled off a daunting list of 13 possible ways of settling the transaction, ranging from gold and silver to beans, clothing, and goats. But in the end, the seller wants to be paid in coin, for, he says, he who has coins or silver can get everything he wants. But those fictitious monks lived in a time of coin scarcity. Indeed, for about seven centuries, between the end of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century and the economic growth of the 12th, coins were in very short supply. Yet, nevertheless, argues my guest Roy Naismith, people found coins important because they established a means of articulating people's place in economic and social structure. Medieval money, and the making of it, turns out to be a point of contact between economic, social, and institutional history. Roy Naismith is Professor of Early Medieval English History at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Corpus Christi. Among his previous books are Money and Power in Anglo-Saxon England, the Southern English Kingdoms, 757 to 865. Roy Naismith, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. Glad to so, be. I'm interested in the topic of itself, and also because I think my listeners have been getting a really easy summer thus far. A lot of 19th century American politicians and presidents and not fluffy nonsense like this. And now's the time for them to, you know, do a seven-minute mile and five minutes or something like that, uh, okay. you know, to okay. uh, do 25 push-ups and, you know, a minute. So we're going to really get in, sink our teeth into what some will find to be a very abstruse and out-of-the-way topic, but which I passionately feel is connected to probably everything. So let's set this up. Why would anyone want to study coinage in early medieval Western Europe. I'm trying to be precise. Okay. Well, I'd say there are there are two reasons. One of which you already put your finger on very well, which is that this is a coinage is a source that touches on all sorts of different areas. It's not just money as a default. It's not just money that's there because it's there. It's money which is doing something, and it's telling us something really interesting. And that brings us to the second reason, which is that. For all that historians of this period tend not to like the term dark ages nowadays, there is a reason that it, it gained popularity. And that one of those reasons is that we don't know as much information as we'd like for much of this period. And this means that coins are actually really, really important. The number that are around, the way in which they're being used, the description of how people are using them, those are all really, really crucial and tell us a lot of important information about the society at the time. Now, uh, over the last 20 years, uh, since I read the BBC most mornings, um, there's been a, it seems like every week, every month, 
Some metal detectorist discovers a hoard of coins in a hedgerow or in the middle of a plowed field. You probably get push notifications. You and your pals text have on a text thread, g giggling over this these things. Is this am I? Is this a renaissance? Uh, oh, sorry, renaissance. Talk about mixing historical terms. I was going to say a renaissance of discovering early medieval money, but it seems to me that people are discovering early medieval money and finding out more things about it at a sort of unprecedented rate. They are indeed, yes. This has been going on really ever since the metal detector became something that people could buy and go out with and, and, and use basically as a, as a sort of tool for recreation. And uh, yeah, they found a huge amount of stuff. There, there are, I guess, 10,000, 20,000 early medieval coins now, now recorded from England and Wales. I should immediately add that there are vastly more coins of the Roman period or the later medieval period that have been, been recorded. For Roman, that's to the tune of about a million. Um, for later medieval, it's to the tune, and by that we mean the sort of 400 odd years after 1066 in England. Uh, for that period, there's about 100,000 recorded. So on the one hand, yes, it's a, a huge increase for those who work on this early period and a transformational one, but it still needs to be kept very much in perspective. I mean, this is, this is uh, the unavoidable starting point of working on this subject matter, that there just is a lot less coined money around in this period. I mean, there are some periods when there's a bit more um, and others when there is a bit less, but overall it's very small fry relative to the Roman world in particular or to the 13th century. So let's let's talk about first what I, the standard received perspective, the SRP, um, which you begin with. Yeah. You say um, that basically this SRP is an early medieval money was negligible in significance and static in its non-development. Could you flesh that out? Sure. This begins really from that, 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 numbers perspective I was just talking about, that there just aren't very many things, very many of these things around. People don't find them when they dig up settlements. You don't see as many of them just turning up by chance when people are, are plowing their fields or building their houses. And for a long time, this this dearth of coin was emphasized as the, the key factor of this people thought there just wasn't much around ergo. It can't have been economically significant. Um, and from some points of view, that's that's absolutely fair enough. You know, if this is a numbers game, then the early medievals is going to lose. But my argument is that it's not necessarily just a numbers game. And it's also possible to take a, a glass half full approach, basically. In other words, ask not just, not look at just at how few there are, but look at why people still make the ones there are. Why do they use the ones that there are? And I'd argue that's actually vastly more interesting because it tells you something about what are the essentials, what are the deep meanings of using coined money at this time of scarcity. It sort of accentuates the significance of using these things when it's simply not the standard. Um, yeah. So um, that's, to get that's back to get back from. to that little that monks dialogue that I used in the introduction, which sure. is it's fascinating, and hopefully we'll get to that. Um, when you've got yeah. so many other choices and there's such a scarcity of coin, why bother to use coin at all? I mean, why, very, very you know, why, why yeah. not use personal credit? Why, uh, you yeah. know, why, or, or a goat, you know, or clothes? I mean, uh, whatever else, we'll get to the variety of things that you can. So why yeah, yeah. use coin at all? That's it. I'd say, first of all, people, did use those other things. And you can see this very clearly in some parts of early medieval Europe, 
northern Spain in particular, which has this hugely rich archive of series of archives of charters that start off in the ninth century and are very, very rich in the 10th, 11th. You can see there people are hardly ever using coin. They are using goats and fabric and iron and all sorts of ab agricultural produce and all sorts of things. But crucially, they are thinking about these usually in terms of monetary units. They have an idea of uh, a solidus or a denarius in their head that they apply to these other things. So in actual fact, we need to think of the idea of money or monetization in, in two distinct ways. There's what you might call conceptual monetization, thinking in terms of money. And that never goes away in the early Middle Ages. All over the place, England, even Ireland, pre-Viking Ireland, northern Spain, uh, Frank, the Frankish lands, what's now France and its immediate neighbours, they use units that are predicated on the idea of precious metal, even if they're not actually mm -hmm. using it. So that's one important thing to stress. The second thing is then why would you actually use um, real coin, actual um, silver or gold coin? The advantage that it has really is that it, it's, a, it's a displacement of those other elements of trust and thinking about each other. It's something you can embed into a, a thing. Uh, and then people can exchange that thing. And basically, you don't have to worry about who you're exchanging it with. You both just need to buy into the same larger system of value, the same idea of that is the king, this is the king's coin, and we will do our transaction using that coin instead of some sheep that you may or may not actually like because it might be an ill sheep that I've just plucked out of a hedge somewhere. Um, that's the value of coin. They try and bridge some of those divides between, between people who aren't necessarily as closely involved with each other. Now, in the early Middle Ages, when doing this is unusual and it becomes a statement, counterintuitively, that sort of the neutrality that people associate with coinage can then be something that you apply in other ways. That is to say, you might have a friend, a neighbor, a brother that you know very well, and theoretically, you could just do it on credit. You could just do it with, with sheep or goats or something else. But you want to do it with coin because that's the way you undertake a proper transaction. That's the way you do things in a public setting where you show off to everyone around you that this is... Uh, 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 an exchange which is being settled here and now in a definitive way that we can all see and understand. Mm -hmm. So you get deep into coins, literally, because you begin with mining. Mining. So what's the process Ooh. in the early Middle Ages from digging stuff out of mine to uh, so, to the point where someone drop, buries it for a metal detectorist to find in the 21st century? Um, I mean, how... Where are mines? Uh, I, I have no idea. How do you dig things up? Is you know, uh, go try to take us briskly through that process. I'll do my best because it's a very very big <laughs> process, particularly if you go back into the, the the Roman period and the late Roman period, when we know there were a lot of mines for different metals all over the empire. Some regions were particularly productive for for well, for metals more generally. Spain, in particular, was the, the major source that the Romans used for, for much of the imperial period, though um, it's, it's often been argued less so by the time you're getting into the later empire. Uh, but we know they were getting gold and silver from various places in Spain. Um, we know there were that the, the famous silver mines near Athens may have been reactivated in the later Roman period. We know that there was uh, gold, uh, silver coming probably from somewhere in Anatolia, Turkey. Um, there are a lot of places. Uh, in terms of the process, how you actually get this stuff out of the ground, I mean, in some ways, it's not so very different to now. You, you dig, you get um, rocks which will usually contain um, 
a very small proportion of gold or silver along with with other other elements. In the case of silver, usually it comes as a byproduct of lead, for example. And so what you need to do is get this stuff out. You need to to melt it down. You need to smelt it. You need to get the. You need to extract the. The, the precious metal, um, and uh, this is done by manipulating the different, um, different sort of melting points of the, the elements. And there are a number of tricks of the trade that were used, and this was being done on a massive, massive scale. There are tons and tons and tons of slag, the sort of detritus that emerges from this process that have been found at, at mining sites. Um, it's worth stressing that often the amount of return that was being got out of, of these mines was pretty, pretty minute compared to the level of effort that was being put in. They had to expend a huge amount of resources to get gold or silver. And there's a great example of this from a place in eastern Egypt, which was a mine for gold in the the fifth uh, and sixth centuries in the early Byzantine period. And it's it's basically in the middle of the desert, it's in the middle of nowhere. And they build this this sort of mining colony, and they were getting tiny amounts of gold out of these these rocks they were digging up in the desert. Clearly. Probably a lot less than it would have cost to actually set up this whole operation. It says something about just how desperate people were to get their gold and silver by this point. Now, if you go forward into the the period I'm I, I'm primarily interested in this book, which is which is Western Europe, um, the situation is even more tricky. They they don't have a lot of gold and silver mines online at this stage. In fact, to my knowledge, there are either no or hardly any gold mines at all active in Western Europe in the period from the 5th century to the 12th. Silver, there are some some mines they tap. Uh, we know there was an important one, a place called Mel in Western France, and this becomes, it becomes significant regionally in the 7th and 8th centuries, and then it, for a period, becomes a major supplier for uh, the whole of the Carolingian Empire and its neighbours in the 9th century. And then uh, in the 10th century, there are also a series of mines in, in Germany, particularly in the Harz Mountains, that start to be used and they feed into the, the silver that's being used. Uh, the other thing that people could do, of course, is use silver that was already there mm. in other forms. This was a big deal. There was a lot of movement back and forth between um, silverware, silver objects, silver brooches, gold objects, well, and coins and, and in the other direction. Um, people used precious metal because it was a useful way of embedding a, 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 a token amount of value in a coin. Not, tokens maybe go maybe a little bit dismissive. You know, it's the key thing is that coins were usually valued at more than the metal in them was. Because otherwise, why not just use a lump of gold? Yeah, and, and, that, and that, I should say that uh, continues into the 18th yeah. century in America, where people are still buying. They put their money, like the coin, they will put into silver as a way of holding value even when porcelain and this is you can see that people still do this even when porcelain is fashionable people are still buying silver service um and the usual explanation for that is because it you are as it were it's your it's a bank you know you, you're putting your money into a into you're not putting it beneath your 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 mattress but close enough you're putting it out on the sideboard or something like that yeah i think that's exactly right and people were were doing that in this period so anyway the Going back to this whole question of how you actually get coins, you, you have your gold, you have your silver, it's been refined. You then take it to someone who can turn it into coins. Um, usually in this period, or at least in especially in England, and at times in, in the, the Frankish world in this period, people thought much more in terms of who made it than where it was made. Uh, they thought in terms of what they called the money, the individual who put their name on the coin, so that if you had a problem with it, you could take it back to so-and-so in London or so-and-so okay, so in Paris. Now, if I go to 
Philadelphia or Denver or wherever else, I can go to the mint yeah. and I can see them minting yes. coins and it's very exciting. A moneyer is a mint. Um, are they, they're, they're not a silversmith during the day and a moneyer at night? I mean, how, how does this work? And, and on, on whose behalf are they moneying? Uh, surely they're doing on behalf of the Anglo-Saxon king or a Carolingian monarch? The short answer is we don't actually know a huge amount about what these moneyers did and how they worked. Some of them definitely were goldsmiths or silversmiths. Others probably weren't. I mean, in England, for instance, you can see that in certain point, at certain points when there's a sudden surge in demand for coin, they're able to pull all these to produce all these new moneyers more or less immediately. And that, to my mind, makes me that, to my mind, suggests they're not, you know, all specialist metal workers. They're people who've got a whole range of skills. Um, and this comes back to this point of who they're working for. Often, yes, they will make coins for for the king or the emperor if you're if you're in the Carolingian Empire, um, but not necessarily in, in, in two ways. They'll do that in two senses. I mean, they'll put the king's name and often the king's image on the coins as well, and the king provides a kind of guarantee of quality. But the king has direct patron. You know, it's actually the king's own silver that you're turning into coin. That is is not necessarily the standard. Sometimes the king would do that. The king would be a major customer. But plenty of other people would have gold and silver as well. And I think this is a, a major difference in the way the early medieval monetary system works, at least in, in Western Europe, compared to, say, the Roman world, or for that matter, the Byzantine world or the Muslim world, where the, 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 there's a much stronger association between minting and mm -hmm. state power. Um, broadly speaking, coins are made by uh, a, a bureaucratic state operation for the state's immediate needs, which primarily means paying, paying soldiers and sometimes paying bureaucrats as well. And then the coins go out and are used and sometimes work their way back to the state through taxation. In uh, places like England or France, where coin is both much scarcer, but also being run in this much more, much more dispersed way, it looks like it was primarily a matter of patronage coming from basically anybody who had silver, but didn't necessarily have the coins that they wanted. And so this means that very likely minting depends primarily on those who've got the most silver, the most consistent supply of silver, which would mostly be people like aristocrats, uh, major churches, um, potentially a mass of, of smaller um, sort of sources as well, like people of, of lower standing, like merchants and peasants and so forth. But I don't think very many minting operations would depend primarily on them. They'd, they'd be working first and foremost on the major sources. So does this mean then this decentralization of minting operations and of moneyers? Does this mean that um, all coins in Western medieval Europe all look different from from moneyer to moneyer, or is there is there is there a template? Because of course, uh, my idea of like Roman imperial power is 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 expressed by there being one you know design or one of the emperor and and the praise and 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 et cetera et cetera and that's sort of early medieval europe there's the king it's it, that is the expression of royal central power how does this work then with does how does design of coinage work in early medieval europe it's the situation varies. I mean, they, they do inherit that idea of coinage being an, an expression of royal authority, an expression of, of unity. So in terms of what things look like in general terms, there is a strong effort in, um, say, 9th, 10th, 11th century England or, or um, 8th and 9th century Francia to have everyone make coins that look 
broadly the same. However, they will have names of different places or different people. Um, if you go back to France in the, the Merovingian kingdom, uh, which is basically France in the, the 6th and 7th centuries, there's a really vast um, coinage of, of little gold pieces, gold tremises, they were called. These are made at about six or 800 locations. Um, and they name just the mania and the mint place. They don't name the king. They still generally have a, a bust of a vaguely Roman-looking figure on one side. So you could argue that's a, a nod to the king. But there's a lot of diversity there. So on the one hand, yes, it, kings and other rulers did maintain this idea that they should be, there should be, uh, that the coinage should be a way of looking at their their domain as a as a unit. It should be an expression of unification. Um, but the the degree to which that was actually enforced, the strength with which that was actually implemented, varied a lot. Um, just as the the number of places where coins are being made, it's not just a direct function of how much coinage there is or how much demand there is for coinage. It's really more about how you organise that demand. It's about how you tap into local power, local structures of exchange and, and, um, and government. And uh, yeah, that dictates where you So actually... one final question, the, the, the value of this coinage is because of the purity of the metal, right? Or the weight of the metal. Um, so do, is there yeah. legislation uh, amongst the Franks, amongst the, Anglo the, the Saxons to that these moneyers must follow in terms of the purity of metal? Or am I reliant upon the the ethics uh, or the the arts of a, a moneyer to get a the purest silver I can, but not too pure. But you know, but, you know, what? How does that work? And do I? I would imagine that it sounds if uh, if there's this decentralized coinage process, that there still must be a um, with such a variation between moneyers and regions that coinage if it flows out of that region still must be assayed and tested you know uh from all the way from biting it with your teeth to actually you know weighing it in scales and even perhaps uh, whatever other chemical process people know at the time at that place actually a very popular method they had in the the, the viking world northern europe at stage was that you you'd stick a knife into a, a coin or a, an ingot that you had had a question about, and you you stick your knife in, you'd pry it up a little bit, and that would show you if there was just a, a veneer of silver on the outside. Mm. And it's possible that if you were someone who'd done this a lot, you could tell just from how hard the silver was, whether it was too too um, too debased or whether it was too hard, too soft. That would that would tell you something. But yes, this this question of fineness was was very important. Again, it goes back partly to the, the symbolic character of the coin. There's a very, very long-running, powerful association between purity, not just in, in a sort of literal sense, but in a sort of metaphorical sense as well, and coinage. This is in, uh, it's there in the Bible, it's there in patristic literature, that coinage is used as a metaphor for the goodness of the soul, that you might look at a person and they might look okay, but actually they've got all kinds of awful, sinful stuff going on on the inside. That's the idea they're getting at. And so coinage was used as a way to illustrate that, and then in the, the early Middle Ages, particularly in the Carolingian Empire and late Anglo-Saxon England, um, people kind of put that equation, they take that equation and turn it around. So it's not just that good coinage means a, a, a good soul. If you want your kingdom to be seen as good in the eyes of God, you need to have a good coinage. You know, it becomes uh, something that we really ought to have. And that means purity, it means standardization. This is one of the reasons why, in those kingdoms, they have these very frequent 
reforms of the currency where they will bring in all or most of the coins that are out there and remint them and require that people use new ones. Um, this is, of course, a way of making profit, particularly for the moneyers, but it's also framed in legislation from this period, first and foremost, as a, 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 a tactic against forgery. And that's not because there actually are vast amounts of forged coins out there. It's a kind of preventative tactic against forgery and against the connotations that forgery would mm -hmm. have for the, the spiritual health of these kingdoms. The, the debasement of the realm, you know, in... in yeah. um, before... Right. But yes, they, they, and they also... So, sorry, I was going to add that they also... Uh, it's all, it is also an important element in value, yes, that people will tolerate a certain amount of fluctuation in terms of the weight or the, the fineness of these things. But yeah, they want there to be a penny's worth of silver in a penny, mm -hmm. basically. Um, before we move on, we should uh, we didn't establish how is a coin made? Because um, uh, yeah. uh, silver and gold, well, gold even more than silver, are very ductile and flexible, much more than we realize. Mm -hmm. So this is that's probably yeah. a, a hint of how it's done. But could you describe that? Yeah. Well, they they alloy the gold and silver with a small amount of other metals. So in the case of silver, that would usually mean copper primarily, and that would serve to to harden the the coin enough that it's not going to be worn down too easily um, and it, it helps in the production process and this means of course that getting the coin to the the correct fineness was the the most technical part of the job you know we now tend to look primarily at the the images on these things that's the most obvious immediately striking thing that, that many modern observers will will take away from these things but actually if you were making them getting the gold and silver just so was really where the, the, the expertise came in and once you've refined the silver, you, you strike the, the individual pieces of metal with um, two, two stamps, what are called dies. And these would be held by a person sitting on a stool. They'd whack it with a hammer once or twice, and then out comes your coin. Um, and you do that over and over and over again. Which in, uh, um, and just to get back to this idea of the, uh, con the connection between coin and the soul of the individual, the realm, in Greek, I believe that's the character that you that you hit the coin with exactly yeah there's a lot of a lot of uh, connections in the whole language that's used for this process yes. yeah. so uh let's get back to um elfric Bata's dialogue that's as i alluded to elfric mm -hmm. uh, you know a obscure medieval monk who wrote a teaching dialogue teaching dialogues which are teaching dialogues are outstanding thank god for them uh to teach people to let other monks know how to do things like buy a book um can we just talk briefly about uh this is like this is just a, a sidebar for you practically in the book but there's a very interesting idea of just price here uh, there's been a lot of guff talked about just price over the centuries uh, and you kind of uh, get through it very quickly both of these monks are interested in the just price of the book it turns out this just price is not being set by the abbot or the pope or or the king. What is a just price? In the context of this dialogue, they explain very clearly that to them, the, the just price, I can't remember if those are the very words they use, but something that adds up effectively to that, um, the fair price, is basically one that he says his friends will tell him is about <laughs> right. It's a consensus thing. Um, the just price represents basically the going market rate um, that you're not blatantly overcharging someone or indeed undercharging someone, which is also potentially the buyer taking advantage of the seller. Um, yeah, as you say, there's a huge amount of literature on this. It gets developed in all sorts of different directions later on. But at least in this period, there is a strong sense of 
um, price as something that should be an expression of essentially fairness. That's not to say it always works that way. You know, this is an idealized dialogue in lots of lots of ways. They haggle, so clearly there isn't a sort of single figure they can they can agree on. There's a bit of wiggle room, um, and you have plenty of other texts from this period which show you people trying to take advantage of good prices or overcharge someone. Um, and this could often be a way of, of powerful people exploiting less powerful people because notionally using coin, buying and selling is meant to be very neutral. This is something that, that, that is emphasized repeatedly. But in practice, if you're the Lord and I'm, I'm the peasant, basically, then you're in a position to, to dictate terms that I won't necessarily be, be willing to challenge. Um, so there's a lot of room for that kind of that kind of manipulation when it comes to these, these prices. So, um, and of course, merchants. Are out. Oh, sorry. No, 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 continue. <laughs> there's there's a wonderful example of this that comes from a, a shrine in the the southwest of France in the the late 10th century when it says that a merchant who comes from uh, further north, so quite some way away from the Auvergne, uh, he comes to this place and he recognizes that the candles that are being sold to to light and um, sort of honor the saint in this church are way cheaper than he's used to back home. And so he thinks, aha, I'm onto a bargain here. So he buys up all the candles that are there and he's got so many that he has to sort of stuff them inside his shirt um, before he can get out. And the saint, who of course is watching all of this, is very, very displeased. And so she um, makes one of these candles sort of supernaturally catch, catch light inside his shirt and then all the other candles catch light as well so this guy is basically on fire with all this smoke and and uh, and flame coming up out of his clothes and he runs round and round like a headless chicken and then finally the the, the candles all drop out and he races off realizing that he's um, he's offended the saint hmm. what um, the one of the points of the dialogue uh, that i, I hmm. took and used in the introduction is that there are a wide hmm. variety of choices once the price is agreed upon uh it's almost a, a cognitive overload to confront the number of different ways in which to pay and it made me think about how different that is from the things that we take for granted um i i, I mean i now use my my iphone uh i i probably 90 percent of the time i don't have to think about how i pay i just no it's done um, but here, these two monks, and I, I think this is an expression of, of life, of, 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 despite being an imaginary dialogue, that there is a, a wide variety of choices. I mean, so what are those choices? We've alluded to some of them. What are the choices and uh, why choose one over the other? Well, I think that the first thing I, I, I should should say about that list is one of the reasons he gives you this bizarrely long array of things is the teaching mm -hmm. context. This is a vocab mm -hmm. list. This is an opportunity for young monks to to learn about some quirky things they might not otherwise come across or show off what homework they've been doing. Um, it's not necessarily the case that every person would wander around with all of these things immediately accessible to them. And that's one of the points, that, that there's a, a long-standing myth, essentially, that... Um, that, that, that trade begins with, with, with barter, by which we mean one person turns up with a sheep and some other person has got a, a chicken, and because one person wants chicken, one person wants sheep, that's, that's the trade that happens. In actual fact, there's not really very good evidence for that. A lot of recent anthropological ethnographic literature has emphasized this. There's an actual fact. Um, it looks like um, sort of obligation and debt and gift giving were the, 
the processes that started off these these transactions. Because once we once we um, think about it, it's really com hard to come up with yeah. sheep chicken equivalents. It just it just Precisely. really is. That's it. Yeah, and this is go this goes back to something that we we talked about before the um the idea that people were using a, a common measure for all these things, even if you didn't have actual pieces of silver in your pocket. Um, and of course, even, even now, um, you can argue that, that uh, gold or silver have often been ascribed this special status. You know, uh, a, a gold pound or dollar or whatever is a more real gold or pound or dollar than anything else. But actually, you know, not really. That, that since the 70s, you know, a dollar has been basically a, you know, whatever a dollar is worth. It's not to do with a particular metallic measure. Um, and so in some senses, we're moving back, or we have moved back to something a bit more like what we're seeing in this period, where there is uh, an idea of a, a unit of account that can be used in lots of different settings and means something similar, regardless of whether it's chicken or sheep or grain or metal or whatever, um, but that you, and that you will transfer that universally between, between people, between situations, and between commodities. How you'd actually choose in practice in a situation where you're you're trying to negotiate a deal with someone is down to a whole host of basically who's got a host of factors, who's got what, who wants what, what the power dynamic is between those people, um, also what you're willing to kind of wait for. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of effectively informal low-level credit going on in the early Middle Ages, probably an awful lot more than we see in most of the texts that survive to us. Um, people would often just wait a while and, and defer a lot of these payments that these might actually take quite some time to carry out. So even if you don't, I mean, what I got out of this is that, you know, the classic economist point that prices are information. Uh, and so, yeah. but money is information too. So even if I don't have coins, even if I only I'm in northern Spain, I only have goats to swap. Um, I'm still I still need the information of the coin. I need that exchange rate in my head in order to make an exchange of goats. I, I need I need yeah. some standard of value, some sort of set value that we all know about. That's in that that's you know that's information, um, and that I can and that I can thereby make an exchange. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is this is conceptual monetization and it's there, very much there. It's very important all through this period. In in northern Spain is a nice example because they they do have access to a small number of coins coming from from uh, sort of elsewhere in northeast Europe, a, a few more from the, the, the Muslim world, the the, um, the emirate and then later caliphate of Al Andalus, but on the whole, there are very, very few coins around. Uh, to some extent, they actually even think in terms of the gold tremesis, which was the currency of the Visigothic kingdom some two, three hundred years earlier than when these documents actually come from. So nobody's really seen a, a, a real gold tremesis for centuries by this point. And yet, to some extent, they still use that, that as a measure. Speaking of, of gold, you have a fantastic yeah. chapter on uh, the Roman legacy, and I was particularly um, intrigued by the way in which the Roman legacy for the, in the early Middle Ages was the idea of gold, of uh, that you would look back to the age of gold, literally, uh, and in which the Roman exemplar of a gold currency held a captivating influence on the mind and imagination of the of the early medieval Europe, and and really, it still does. I mean, you know, growing up with Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money vault, 
Um, it's you know it's in gold coin. Very uncomfortable, perhaps, to do, but you know it's that's that's our idea of of wealth is things in gold. Could yeah. you could you tease that out a little bit? Yeah, I'll do my best. Worth worth saying first of all that gold, until relatively recently, like until more or less the First World War, people did use gold quite extensively for high value transactions in in Britain, Western Europe, North America, um, and there are some parts of the world where gold still has a much larger role as a a store of wealth, as a display of wealth, than than um, it, it does at least in in the UK or, or the the US. Um, yeah, and in the Roman period, what, what changes in about the year 300 or so is there's a, a move to rate the whole of the monetary system in terms of gold. This is predicated on this new unit that starts to be current around this time, solidus, um, which is often described as the dollar of the Middle Ages. This is where the, um, the S... Um, in the abbreviations for old British money, predestined British money. That was the solidus. It was a term that had enormous staying power as this gold coin, then later on as a, as a measure of silver as well. Um, and so the solidus in the Roman period becomes what um, particularly bronze is measured in terms of. And this effectively means that if you're someone who deals in gold, your, your money, your wealth is much more stable. Um, it's much less prone to inflation. Whereas if you're someone who uses more uh, base metal coin, um, then you're at more risk of suffering from sometimes really quite quite drastic inflation, which is going to make your life difficult. Um, and you can see that there was more gold around in the late Roman world. People liked to use gold, and particularly gold coin, um, because these gold pieces were they were very very pure. This is this is the time when the measure of 24 carats of gold came to be came to be current, and these coins were 24 carat. They were they were treated as kind of interchangeable with, with bullion. So it's a bit like a modern Krugerrand, you know, it's a coin that's worth its weight in gold. And when that is the measure for everything else, then it's sort of sort of combining those two roles in one. So the gold coin becomes this sort of totem, this sort of dominant force in the whole economy. And that's that's something which is emphasized across the board. You can see it in all sorts of letters of people like St. Augustine and these other great figures of late antiquity, that they, they talk about people who are in these desperate scrapes where they can't get together enough gold that they owe for tax. Uh, there's a wonderful example where um, uh, Augustine is talking about um, how uh, in, in, in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they talk about the, the denarius that you're meant to be paying to Caesar, and they adjust it so it becomes the solidus that you're meant to be paying. Um, so there's a, a, a deep sense of this solace having penetrated into Roman society as a, uh, a, a symbol of state power, but also a symbol of wealth more generally. Mm. And of uh, stability and, and of mm. character. And, and yep, of, indeed, you know, indeed. it's, uh, and, and it remar has remarkable staying power. I, when you thinking about it, so I, I ha it's uh, almost uncontested in its length of staying power, mm -hmm. as you give with that, the use of the S as an abbreviation in English coinage, which people... Yeah, the other thing I should, I should say is that I've, I've been talking very largely about the situation in, in Western mm -hmm. Europe, where there's not very much money around, and things narrow down basically just to gold in the immediately post-Roman period. They keep going, that sort of central prop of the currency, and the, the bronze and the silver gradually, gradually drop off. However, in uh, the Byzantine world, the East Roman Empire, and then subsequently the Muslim world as well, something much more like that Roman situation perseveres, in which you have gold and silver and a large base metal currency, that that, that much more 
basically complex, that much richer monetary landscape mm -hmm. perseveres in a way that simply doesn't in, in Western well, Europe. Be, because um, by Charlemagne's reign, it, and before, uh, gold is, what's the percentage of coin that's gold versus the percentage that's silver? I mean, it's... Oh, well, well, by the reign of Charlemagne, it would probably be, my guess is something like 1%. And and gold coinage really serves quite a quite a distinct role by that stage. It's something that's used in very high value, very prestigious settings. There are some locally made gold coins, but they tend to be quite varied in appearance. They will also use gold dinars, Muslim world. There's a very famous one that's made by one of Charlemagne's English contemporaries, Offer of Mercia, where he imitates uh, a, a gold dinar from Baghdad very, very closely, except he adds Offa Rex, King Offa, um, in the middle of this Arabic inscription. Uh, it's actually upside down relatively Arabic, so they clearly didn't have a clue what this stuff actually said, um, but they knew it was jolly important to replicate it very precisely because this was one of the, the key high-value currencies of 8th century Europe. So, and then they're using silver. Yeah, so let's talk about silver. That lends itself very nice. How did the, this proliferation of silver coinage in Western Europe was that and it, was that inflationary? I mean, but it was obviously necessary. But how did that how did that change things? It doesn't seem to have been inflationary. We don't have very good information for prices in this period, but it's it's hard to see major shifts over over really quite long periods. I mean, England. Uh, England, for instance, has got, got law codes which occasionally cites the, the amount you're supposed to pay in compensation for uh, a sheep or a cow or something like that. And you can see that these hardly change at all over a period of at least two or three hundred years um, in the 9th, 10th and 11th centuries. Um, so it looks like the, there is more, sometimes more silver being pumped into the economy, but it's it's a society that can kind of sustain it. You know, they're so chronically short of coin, basically, mm -hmm. that even when there's more of it put into circulation, it doesn't have that effect of, of pushing prices in general mm -hmm. up. You do have plenty of examples where there is a famine or there is a local crisis of some sort which temporarily pushes up prices. In fact, that's a little bit problematic for those who are studying this, as I as I found to my irritation when I was doing this book, because a lot of the references we have to prices will only say something like, in this year, things were so bad that a bushel of, of wheat cost, you know, 10 solidi. Well, that sounds bad, but we don't know what the normal price was. So you can't really say anything about what the standard situation is. Yeah, so can we talk, that's a kind of example, you give several examples of continuity and change throughout the early yeah. Middle Ages. So let's, let, can we do an example of, of, of both? I mean, what's what's continuity, but what's what's the change? I mean, you're a historian. We want to, we want to talk about change. What changed over time, well, th th if anything? Well, well, I, there are a couple of things. There's a lot that changes, <laughs> but two things I'd, I'd single out are, one is there's a general move towards silver instead of gold. And this is something that, that begins in... Um, probably England and the Low Countries in around about 660, the 670s, that kind of time, um, when they start using what effectively become the first silver pennies. Uh, and this then spreads to the rest of England, to the Frankish world, um, and very gradually this becomes the standard coinage of the late Merovingian and, and Caribbean. And, that, and that's, I should, sorry to interrupt, but that's just, as we've just already alluded to, that's of absolute necessity because there is no gold in Western Europe, right? I mean, is that... That's part, that is a big part of it, yes. They don't have any gold anymore, although there are some areas where they, they eke out what they've got for a, a lot longer than that. Mm. So Spain, um, Visigothic Spain, they carry using debased gold right down to the 8th century. Um, Southern Italy, the, the Lombard Principality of Benevento, 
uses gold into the middle of the ninth century. So you're right, there is a lot less gold, but it's not necessarily just a matter of switching to the next best thing. It's a conscious decision that we're going to start using this silver. And in fact, it's it's not entirely clear where all of that silver is, is coming from. Um, a lot of it might have been from melted down um, plate from from various other sources that, that they were just turning to a new use at that point. So in effect, they'd already been sitting on this silver for a while. They just suddenly decide we're going to use it for something different, which suggests that there is a really quite fundamental shift in the way those who are patronizing mints and supporting the, the sort of tent pole people who are supporting the, the mass use of currency, that they're doing something quite different at that stage. Mm -hmm. um Let's get to, or begin to move towards the end of the conversation now. So I'm, I'm curious, um, how does this era end? I mean, you, you, you deliberately, ch you chose to end it, the, the, the book somewhere. Um, what's the transition period? Why is, uh, why do you end it here? And what, why, what is the, the era on the other side of that? What, why does it look different in terms of coin and the use of coin? Um, but what's, how is coin by the 11th century, how is it being used differently than it had been before in mid early medieval Europe? And then what changes? I, I chose to end with a sort of long 11th century, sort of late 10th, 11th century, because this is a period when you can see there is a widespread increase in the use of coin. You can see this all the way from, from uh, Ireland, England, Scandinavia, right down to to Rome and northern Spain, that they start to both make and so, use. So, what are our, what are our dates, just for the for people who are? Uh, um, sort of nine fifty onwards, mm -hmm. nine fifty to about ten fifty, eleven hundred is when you can see this. This, I mean, it carries on after as well, but that's roughly when I chose to mm -hmm. stop. The main reason I chose to end when I did in end of the eleventh, twelfth century is that there is a a, a much bigger increase in the amount of silver that's in circulation especially in the second half of the 12th Why? century like like mass uh that is thought to be con connected with opening of many more big silver mines a lot of big new silver mines particularly in central europe mm. um so in the in the alps in other parts of germany i mean we're talking that we're talking about you see you know five ten times as much currency in circulation based on these these fines people are actually turning up you can see that changing how people are, are handling even even things like mathematical education you know this is this is a, a a shift of a different order of magnitude and it's one which has been studied very well by other scholars so what i was really looking at is the the precursor and then finally the prelude to that shift mm -hmm. so that up to that moment um we're going in a we've got the weakening of uh well the kingdom of the franks is is fragmented we have a weakening of centralized power and certainly in france and uh, england is uh, sort of so who is minting money uh and 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 what does money mean in that in that period institutionally for for and as well as then increasingly socially in many ways, it still has that idea of, I mean, sovereignty can be a slightly tricky word, mm -hmm. but it's something that is associated with, you know, authority and power. And because authority and power in this period, the sort of late 10th, 11th century, particularly in, say, Western France, is becoming very devolved, you see the currency become very devolved. There aren't that many new mints which come online, which That's is interesting. interesting. They tend to stick to the ones that were there already. 
but they become much more clearly the the um, sort of domain, the property, the 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 the, the entity of the the count, the local ruler. So the king uh, is a fairly fairly uh, minor player in this whole process in France. Germany, that's also true, but for slightly different reasons. That in Germany they kind of create a whole network that is very dispersed, more or less from scratch, in the tenth and eleventh century. So you've got by the end of the 11th century, up to 150, 200 people, or 250, you know, authorities and locations issuing coin, sometimes issuing coin, um, and they will usually be very different, each one to another. And that's because they're they're tied up with grants that are given by the king or emperor to the, the abbot of here, the bishop of there, and those, those, those people will issue their own particular coin because that's what they've been told they're allowed to do. So in a sense, that ultimately those go back to the, the ruler in a way that is 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 less less true in western in in france um but the result is actually quite similar you've got a very very fragmented picture where there is a lot more coin in circulation and a lot more places making it but it's it's it exemplifies something i mentioned before which is money and the production of money and some aspects of the use of money tells you a lot about how structures of power and government and institutions are organized it's not just a sort of neutral economic entity. It's something that expresses really, really deep, important points about how other things are being done. Um, so just one last question about this one, sort of a boneheaded uh, question, which is how, even if I'm taking coin from one of these, how many regions in Germany did you say were there, there were? were uh, it's being made over more or less all of what is now modern Germany, but there'll be up to 150, so I can, 200. I, I have 150 different sort of coin systems of coinage. Um, and so interstate commerce, and I'm putting that in air quotes, no one can see that, um, is uh, 150 different places. I have to take, when I take a coin to some other place, uh, what's the process? Do we have any idea what they went through to, when, when they're trying to, because the, the, this coin, this is not one of our coins. Um, so how do I know it's legitimate? You know, how do, how do I... Money changing was a big business in this period, and we know in some places, so England, for example, we know this was something that moneyers did, that they both made the coin, but they also changed the coin. So they basically did, they were a one-stop shop for anything and everything involving involving coined money. Um, in We know from uh, a set of laws from Strasbourg at the beginning of the 12th century, they had a different set of people. They had some guys who made coins for the bishop and then some other guys who, who changed your coins for, for other coins. Um, the other way in which people would handle this, there are two ways people would handle this, is you'd use um, sometimes big lumps of silver. Like if you were some, if you were a, a merchant or a person who would go a long distance and lost a lot of money, you'd just take like uh, an ingot or some other object made of pure silver with you. There's a, there's a great example of a, a bishop um, from Germany who goes to Rome in the, it's actually a little bit later, it's the very early 13th century, but it shows this process very well because the accounts survive. It talks about how he takes this um, big lump of silver with him and basically just hack a bit off when they get into each new town and have it made in some local coin. And they would spend some on food. They say at one point they spent money on a jester to give them some entertainment <laughs> one night. Um, yeah, it, it shows you exactly that process at work. The other thing you'd do is, if you had to use coin, you'd focus on ones that were particularly popular and particularly highly regarded. Because these aren't all created equal, those 150-odd places. Some of them would operate on a very small scale and wouldn't make many coins at all. Some of them would be massive, and they do big business, and their coins we know very widely. Somewhere like, say, Cologne, for example, in Germany. 
Um, and so what people would do is, is give preferential treatment to those ones. And so this could end up with a kind of sort of reverse Gresham's law, you know, that if you've got all these coins circulating next to each other that, that aren't, there's nothing that's telling you they're all, they've all got to be treated equally, then what you'll actually gravitate towards is the better ones. Um, you, the better ones can drive the worse ones out, basically, if that's the situation. And I, so I imagine that people also must be taking some of the worst ones and having them melted down and made into some of the good ones, because if that's what you can do. Yeah. That's right. In fact, the other problem is, of course, a lot of the time when you have the worst ones, that's because it's it's they're being manipulated by the local rule. You know, they're debasing their coins, they're forcing people to use mm -hmm. them. That they'll require that you use those dodgy coins within that area. And there's a there's a wonderful narrative from uh, from Lyon in France at the beginning of the 1100s when they have this bishop um, called uh, called um, called Gaudry who is a complete disaster and there is this this description of how one of the things he does is he debases the coinage and he debases it again and then he prosecutes people who refuse it and you know the whole thing is a kind of uh weed for him to raise cash and this is this is described in great detail um as a way of trying to show just how terrible he is um but it's rare to have that whole process described in so much depth so it's actually quite valuable to us. so uh, i just wanted to conclude with some of your conclusions uh, that you uh, that you end in the book um, what are some of the, your the, your larger arguments um, that you bring away from the book well I think one of the things I, I wanted to emphasize was that the coin has this symbolic role I've mentioned mm -hmm. already how it's it's something that people could give to one another in which everyone would recognize and see what it meant. That's something which I think needs to be emphasized. This is one of the major forces that keeps it going in the early Middle Ages. People want to use coin because meaning using coin has a particular weight, a particular significance to it. And there are all kinds of fantastic examples you can point to from across this whole period of people doing exactly that from the 5th century through to the 11th century. And that, that doesn't change. It's another good example of, of continuity in this period. It's still kind of with us now you know the parallel I, I use sometimes when i'm talking about this is a giant novelty check you know that when you want to make a point of giving money in a particular way you will sometimes dress it up you will sometimes make sure people know very clearly what's going on in contrast to just handing over a mass of non-sequential notes in a manila envelope you know those are the, the sort of extremes one can cite with with modern parallels um other things i want to emphasize are how relatively small changes in the quantity of these coins can have a significant effect but we're never going to get up to the the levels that you saw in the roman period or in the later middle ages here but there are some periods when there is more coin in circulation and when you have even that little bit extra it means there is something quite 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 distinct and special going on it shows you that there are more people using these things more people making these things um in fact another thing i wanted to try and draw out was that there is an important gulf often between how these things are being made and how these things are being used that they're often being made through these processes of patronage by people who are really quite wealthy and well placed in society but those coins would then be used many times after their first injection into circulation so in actual fact the the afterlife of those coins the way in which they move off and get used in other places that is much a much larger phenomenon than the actual making of these things and in some ways rather more significant for what we can derive from these in economic terms um the one final question for you um 
why is this uh i mean i think this is fascinating that's why i that's why i wanted to talk with you about this but what is um what's the benefit do you think about thinking about this very different era in terms of conceiving of money and using money and holding money what's the benefit for historians uh, outside uh, who are not interested typically in the early middle ages I think it shows that coin money, well, money in general, is not just fuel for making the real stuff happen, which is often the way it's, it's portrayed in a lot of historical and economic literature, but it is an important part of the machinery itself. And I think that a time of relative scarcity, relative marginality, basically, it is a, a fairly small fry entity relative to what the rest of the economy is doing that actually accentuates that point it tells us more about what the coinage what money as an actual thing people could use is really doing um i think it also makes us think more about the the materiality of it um how people would actually do this the settings in which this in which they would do this the way in which they would ascribe meaning to these things um it tells us something about how um how well, what exchange meant, what it what it signified to transfer value from one person to another, and how you would actually demonstrate that. I read a lot of anthropological literature coming into this about how money is displayed, how the the, 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 the use of it can be manipulated in all sorts of different ways. And the key point is that in the past it was always thought that money is something that exerts a change on society, that it, it modernizes, it homogenizes everything. Um, in actual fact, now there's a swing to think more about how societies change money. How do societies adopt it, make it their own, do distinct things with mm -hmm. it? And we need to do that not just in a kind of anthropological sphere, but also in a historical one too. You think about how different societies use this phenomenon in different ways. And that was what I wanted so, to show for the end. So money, we make the meaning of money. Money does not make our meaning. Exactly. Yes. Uh, just before you before I really conclude, uh, one last question: How did you get interested in this? I had a friend at Oxford, a classicist, who on his way to college every day would go through the Ashmolean just to look at the Roman coins. Um, was that you? I mean, that wasn't literally you, but I mean, was that <laughs> that approach except applies to Cambridge? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always love these things. I mean, I I. I I often tell my students because that I've been asked this question many times <laughs> that I remember when I was about probably about seven or eight years old being taken on a family trip to York and in a, a little antique shop I got this very very worn Roman coin but even though it was really quite a crummy thing I've, I've still got it somewhere um, it the idea that this was a real Roman thing that other Roman people would have held in their hand and used but which was also an artifact of the Roman government had the name of the emperor made in the you know, I thought just, wow, that's great. This is a thing that's still here. It bridges all these different areas. You know, it's historical, it's archeological. Um, that, that doesn't go away. Um, you know, I still, you know, think that's a really thrilling aspect of the subject. Uh, and the other thing that's a really fun part of it is we began by talking about metal detectorists and how people are finding these things all the time. That means this is a constantly changing, evolving subject, you know, new stuff, significant new stuff, coins of previously unknown mints or types or rulers. These come to light more or less every year, you know, just a, a month or two ago, we had the first ever coin of uh, a Carolingian empress, a mm -hmm. um, uh, Carolingian queen, you know, Fastrada, Charlemagne's wife. 
um, a year or two Which ago. Which is a, a type of coin that no one knew existed before, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, exactly. that yeah, we didn't, yeah. no one had any it's idea that an empress would somehow be issuing her own coinage. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, but yeah, uh, this gets me very excited. This takes us back to Beowulf and Veilthiao and, you know, and, and the queen, the treasure chest being under the queen's bed. And, you know, this is this is early medieval queenship. And uh, it's a separate question. All right. Well, thank yeah. you very much. My guest today has been Rory Naismith. He's author of Making Money in the Early Middle Ages, now available from Princeton University Press. Rory, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 